Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 117, and today we have an extra special uh, power duo over from Australia with Louise Burke and John Hawley. Hi, Louise and John. How are you? Good, thank you. Hi, Lauren. Congratulations on uh, reaching 117. That's, that's a milestone. It's a lucky number. It's Yeah. You, you know what's interesting uh, is lots of people have a go at doing podcasts, but the statistic is um, the average person manages about three to five podcasts before they give up. Um, although I did take a year off to finish my doctorate, it was, uh, it is, is, it's, it's hard work, but nothing matches the amount of hard work as it was to get you both together for this podcast. Um, that's the problem. So, um, so thank you. Thank you so much. So look, um, I'm not going to spend a long time, um, focusing on who you guys are and, and what you're up to, which is how I normally start a podcast because a listeners uh, will or should know who you guys are Um, um, and obviously we've done a number of podcasts in the past where we've discussed a number of topics with both of you but just a super quick summary of 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 where you're at currently would be useful if 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 that is an update of course to where we we last were so perhaps Louise we could start with you Um, well I have a new title it's chief of nutrition strategy at the Australian Institute of Sport um, and I'm also chair in sports nutrition at Mary McKillop Institute for Health Research at ACU. You're the chief. I love it. That's that sounds oh, yes, very fitting. Chief. <laughs> and, um, and and the chief back at home, isn't that right, John? <laughs> yeah. Well, my my title hasn't changed, uh, nor my role in uh, in this relationship. So uh, I'm the director of the Mary McKillop Institute. So theoretically, my wife's boss. Although that doesn't really too much water um, and also more to the point and, and of relevance head of the exercise and nutrition research program which is of direct relevance to what we're going to talk about no, that's great and you know you guys collectively have amassed an amazing amount of knowledge and experience on both sides of the science to practice spectrum which is why i think we're particularly lucky to have you both on 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 one uh podcast together and recently you guys had published um this article um swifter higher stronger in um a special series wasn't it in uh, science magazine just before i sort of explain why it is that actually i wanted to have this conversation i'm sure lots of people uh, would love to know how that article even came about bearing in mind that that um, you know, you guys are particularly well known in the field of sports and nutrition, but in the context of, of sort of medicine and and healthcare research and uh, science in general, I don't think sports science generally enjoys such a prestigious place in that type of article. So I think it's it's just amazing and wonderful that you managed to do that. But tell us how how did that article come about? Um, I'm sure we're all intrigued. <laughs> well, it's actually a pretty funny story. It was. Um the day that the AIS announced that it was getting rid of sports nutrition, I went home and the next morning I got up and there was an email from Science saying, we'd like to commission you to write an article on sports nutrition. And I thought, well, there's irony for you. Someone thinks that sports nutrition is really important. I thought it was a joke first because I thought, who'd ask me to write in that kind of um, um, journal? Um, I don't know why and how they chose, but 
I um, was really pleased to have the opportunity to, to have sports nutrition represented. And so I thought, who's the best co-author I can think of? And um, he was... Across and the he table. wasn't available, so he chose John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. George clearly was busy, so I had to um, go with John. No, for, a, for a small fee, I agree to that, of course. <laughs> um, but I think your point's very valid, Lance. To have, to have something like Sports Nutrition at Punchin Centre in an article where, uh, you know, it's juxtaposed against others who are leaders in the field in, as you say, some of the medical sciences, some of the gastrointestinal articles, that some reviews which were uh, with ours and another one was was very good and I think it's just it's not good for us only I think it's good for the field because it actually showcases what sports nutrition is about and the fact that it is underpinned by science it's not you know sort of a, a Mickey Mouse thing it's now had a long history and you know there are classic articles that have been published in the last 30 40 or even 50 years and so the opportunity to do this I think was a good good one number one but number two very very uh, prestigious for the field to be put on the map and to be taken seriously so uh, all we need now is lots of citations and they might ask us to do another one yeah well we'll, we'll hopefully we'll push that a bit more but i i think i think that is the point and that's what struck me when i when i read it you know it it, it was a number of things to me as a consumer um of the information um and in particular what struck me as i read it was well there was a couple of things number one was although only a number of pages long um it was basically a bachelor's a master's and a phd all rolled into into one article which is uh takes some doing um uh, it, it, within the scopes of just a few a few pages but also i think this is particularly useful document um if we were to be facing extinction to a certain extent and we were to have to bury a number of important documents into a capsule into the earth I felt that this article would be one such example of, of how we could help um, that information survive uh, to the next generation, so to speak. And by that, I mean, you know, we exist in a very messy, noisy environment. Louise, you've written about this in, you know, in the whole scienciness topic, um, you know, extending beyond Colbert's truthiness uh, idea. And I feel that matters are almost sort of getting, you know, uh, sort of like a nuclear explosion. So to be able to rise above that and produce something such as this that, you know, ha has a robust uh, uh, aspect to it, I think is, is wonderful. It is also something I feel that if we had to choose one article, you know, to read, to dish out to people, um, as it relates to where my interests are, my interests, um, to remind everyone, is that I'm interested in evidence-based practice. I'm not just interested in sports and exercise, nutrition, science, and all the topics that relate to that. Um, you know, John, we've gotten into things like integrative biology with you on a previous podcast, which was fascinating, but also drives home the importance of bearing in mind the bigger picture, the bigger picture of a, a human being and not being so reductionistic as we approach that, but also in the context of the real world. And since we're not just talking about athletes, we are also talking about human beings. We are also talking about a lot of information um, that may well be relevant to science, but we're talking about practice, which is more than just science. And when we're talking about athletes or elite athletes we're talking about achieving an outcome goal which is ultimately 
achieving podium, winning, you know, winning medals. So we have to question of all of that noise and all of that information of, of that, what is actually relevant to achieving those goals. And that's where I think we can come back and point to, to this document. Um, so with all of that said, um, this is possible. Yeah, sorry. Compliment that that's um, very humbling. Um, well, I mean, it, you know, I think it's incredibly difficult to do what you guys have done and you've, but you know, you, you, you've spent many years doing what you do. And I think to sit there and pen this to paper for the benefit of us all is, you know, is wonderful, but this isn't about, um, you know, trying to, uh, to compliment you guys. I think what we, I think what we've got here is, is, is something that allows us to transmit some some of those relevant points that I refer to uh, to the to the audience, who are all very informed people for for the most part. So let's let's bring this back to the the article, which I will actually um, link to uh, in my uh, in my show notes for this. But but um, and you guys can sort of decide who takes the lead on this. But I think you know we talk about um a field that is sport and exercise nutrition we can place that within the context of sport and exercise science which is pretty young really compared to many of the other sciences but perhaps you guys could give us just a bit of history here when we talk about sports science or particularly sports nutrition you know how far back does all this go um you know is this stuff that was well established back in in the days of you know all our forefathers or is this a, a more of a recent thing and and you know it, with 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 all of that in mind you know where do you guys feel we are in the context of that bigger picture of science well it's a great question and i think themes is that often athletes and coaches work stuff out and i know that you know that trial and error is a really slow teacher but sometimes they find out really exquisite truths and a lot of our science is really just going back and explaining why that works and maybe helping to tweak it when you know why it works you can maybe amplify it but you know you can go back a hundred years ago and see what people were doing in, in the Boston Marathon or Tour de France and they were often you know following practices that we can now explain and how they thought of them in the first place. It's hard to, hard to probably picture. Um, but it's, you know, it's really probably not to the 1960s that we got a bit of grunt behind the science because of the techniques that we're able to, um, to use to get inside the muscle and to um, better measure what was happening in terms of metabolism to explain the, the underpinning of, of exercise metabolism. Yeah, I think just to build on that, I mean, as Louise said, the, the 60s with the introduction of the biopsies, the introduction of traces, so we could track the fate of protein and we could, you know, trace how much muscle protein was uh, synthesized. Also the same for glucose with all the tracer methodologies there. And, and George Brooks has called it, you know, the golden era of biochemistry. And I think that really paved the way. And if you think back to the classic studies done on just muscle glycogen resynthesis, um, by Eric Holtman and Jonas Bergstrom, you know, an N of two subject, both of them in the study, both of them there were up front with their initials in the paper, which of course ethics committees would not allow these days. And, you know, a simple study like that, which was in nature, um, really heralded the way for, for what was to come. But as Louise said, I think a lot of what's known now has, has been around for a, a good long 
period of time. We can measure things much quicker now, but one thing that I always ask my students is, yes, you, you can go and measure, you know, 20,000 genes, you can do proteomics, lipidomics, et cetera, et cetera. But how much of that information can we actually distill, and as you've so eloquently put it, put it into practice, evidence-based practice? And I think you'll find out that we have an awful lot more information, but as far as the practical side goes, I'm really not sure on that. I don't think we stack up as perhaps as well as we think. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, what I'm seeing, not only from my own experiences firsthand of trying to learn about this stuff and make sense of it, but also in more recently applying it, you know, with athletes and teams and so on, is the enormous amount of information that is now presented to us. Um, and the, you know, the, the decision making, I mean, if we remember that a core feature of evidence-based practice you know, sits on the burden of responsibility will sit on the shoulders of the person making decisions. So decision making is, is key to that process. And behind that ability to make decisions is, yes, information, but also there's the ability to, you know, look at that information critically, um, you know, to be uh, 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 open minded at the same time, but skeptical. Um, to quote uh, Kevin Tipton from a, a lecture I attended once, being open-minded and skeptical is difficult, you know, but having that, that toolbox available that, that has an ever-growing, you know, capacity and an ever-growing, you know, set of, of tools does present the, the practitioner, the, the sports scientist and the researcher with a lot of, a lot of temptations. Um, Louise, because you've been at the coalface, as we say, of, of practice for a, a long time, as well as, as being a researcher. Bearing that in mind, you know, I mean, even within your own experiences, you know, we're talking about the, the sort of the growth and evolution of, of sports nutrition as a, as a field, as a, as a profession. What have you seen in, in your own sort of professional lifetime and, uh, you know, and, and sort of bring that to where we are now, where obviously you're spending a lot of time now trying to distill that as John referred to. One of the things that's um, most noticeable about what we're doing now is it's very much about personalising, periodising. Previously, we as gym athletes, so the fact that we can now um, specialise and, and be more targeted and break everything down in the same way that coaches you know, periodise training, we now think about attaching nutritional strategies to different kinds of sessions in different ways and trying to eventually integrate all those different ideas into the, the product that you take to competition. So that's, that's certainly a change. And in, in some ways, there's been an... You know, science has impeded some of this progress because sometimes we discover something we're so, you know, wonderful. We think it's so um, admiring of our own cleverness. We stick to an idea long past its use date. And, you know, some examples of that. Um, you know, both with carbohydrates, so worried about gastric emptying. 
and you know once you start putting solutes into into fluid oh it interferes with gastric emptying and it'd be so terrible um you know to interfere with hydration and i remember talking to dave costell and he you know he said that that was the line that he took and you know certainly in in 1981 when there was um work done around needs for the marathon carbohydrate didn't even get a look in there was just paper on fluid and dave said he went over to um to the Scandinavia about that time and he watched what the cross-country skiers were doing and they were drinking these really gloopy very concentrated carbohydrate solutions and he just took his head at them and said hey you guys you know you guys are crazy that's just sitting in your stomach and they said oh I don't think so and he said well look let me take a nasogastric tube and I'll pull it out after you've um, done your event and he put the nasogastric tube down it was all gone you know body had found a way of being able to empty all this stuff and get it to the muscle and so it wasn't until eventually we started looking at what people were practicing and thinking well geez there must be some good reason for doing that that we started to change our ideas and you know now in terms of um, endurance and the higher intensity endurance events like the, the marathon we're now actually giving people advice to take quite concentrated solutions of carbohydrate to try and increase the amount of exogenous fuel we can take on to try and you know make our carbohydrate stores last as long as possible at, at high rates of utilization so um you know sometimes we've discovered things but sometimes our discoveries have have impeded us from moving on into better practices and now if i can just add something there just very quickly lawrence it's another dave costal story but you know dave said if you go back and return repeat most of my studies, you'll find that, you know, some of the results aren't right. One of the classic ones that I've discussed with him many times is the, is the costal and salt in gastric emptying paper. And you've got to remember a lot of those early studies were done with subjects sitting around in the morning, overnight fasted, not exercising. So, you know, I've had gastronasic uh, gastro inserted at Ball State when I was studying with Dave Costal in the morning, not exercising, sitting at rest. So we were essentially studying science but not really studying the practicalities of it because athletes don't sit there at rest so a lot of those early conclusions from the gastric emptying studies until joe humard and daryl newfer and some of our contemporaries and colleagues started doing this during exercise were completely erroneous so again that's a good example of following up from louise where the science in some instances has impeded it and dave will be the first to admit that you know they got that wrong <laughs> Do you, do you guys think, because uh, there's some interesting thoughts behind that. Firstly, I think when you start studying some of this, you know, I mean, you've been mentioning some, some names there, which if you trace, you know, some of our contemporary thoughts back to certain names, there's a number of key names that, that pop up and you've mentioned some of them already. Would you say um, that back then that it was much more a case of experimentation um, obviously there were limits to the resources they had, although they had a lot more freedom with regards to constraints of ethics committees and so on that you have now. Um, but obviously because the body of knowledge was pretty small back then, it was, it was largely a question of sort of banging around at the time and maybe m more recently we're now in a position where there, there's more inertia with that. I mean, where, where, where do you, you know, in trying to trace back our roots, if you like, as to, you know, we've got an idea where we are now, but, you know, it's helpful to figure out where we came from and why, why we've gone down the paths that we have um, to help us map out the future. Perhaps this is a useful thought process. 
Well, again, it's another funny Dave Castle story, and I won't mention the company, but it's a large uh, sports drink company which sponsored a lot of the research in the in the 70s and 80s and really did drive a lot of it. And um, Dave was saying in one of his studies for the gastric emptying study, he put in a grant to this company and uh, it was for $800 and it was to look at carbohydrates and gastric emptying. And the company came back and said, well, add a zero and, you know, we'll, we'll give you it type thing. And Dave Costa will tell you that that's the foundation of his whole lab's research. From that study, you know, they had a JAP paper, then another one, and then another grant, and this, that, and the other. But I like what you said earlier about the fact that it was sort of pioneering and experimental. And at the moment, as Louise again said earlier, a lot of our stuff, we just come along and dot the I's and cross the T's on stuff that coaches and athletes, by trial and error, have learned is possibly the right thing to do. And, you know, we get a little bit hung up on the mechanisms, and I'm obviously guilty of this, uh, more, to, more so than Louise. But, you know, we're trying to explain in things now, and I think some of the pioneering spirit has, has gone out of it, you know, partly because it's a funding issue, partly because it's an ethical issue, but, you know, partly because it's hard to get subjects who are often very well educated to actually change things dramatically. So I, I think, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different now. The plan feels a little bit different to what it was 20 or 30 years ago, at least when I started. One yeah. of the things that um, some of the early researchers, I'm going to keep going back to Dave Costell, but you know, one of the great things about Hall State was that athletes would come and do the studies. There was a badge of honour in terms of working with Dave and he had some of the best athletes you know, coming in and doing things. And um, these days it's very difficult to both attract and interfere with an elite athlete's um, program in order to, to study them. Um, I've been really lucky with our Supernova series recently to, to have that opportunity. But, you know, so many of us are um, reliant on just recreationally or sort of trained people and both, you know, what you find out from them in terms of um, their physiology, but also their ability to drive themselves to perform is, is so different to an elite athlete that, you know, we're talking different kinds of outcomes to studies, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, it makes me feel that, you know, that you, you mentioning these names. These are like the Adam and Eve, aren't they, of sports nutrition science. Um, so ah, there's lots of stuff I want to get into, which I'm going to leave um, until a bit later in this, this conversation. But if we just bring this back to, to human beings historically experimenting with training and lifestyle, um, you mentioned in, in your paper about, you know, the, the sort of the the ancient Olympians, which is, I guess, when we cast our minds back in history, those are the sort of the athletes that we typically think of. Although, of course, we can go further back to famous, um, you know, Greek mythology and, and so on about people um, achieving great things to get messages from one side of the world to the other and so on. But, but as it relates to nutrition and how that influences training, you know, has some of that history played a major role in why we're doing what we're doing now? Do you think like what, you know, where, where are yeah. we with that, with that link That's to history? Point. Yeah. You say we go back tens of thousands of years and we do, we do, you know, if you think of, you know, Milo, the, the, the wrestler and, you know, look at his intake or purported intake of protein there, obviously they, these Greeks know a thing or two about protein and muscle mass. And, you know, they had no traces, they had no this, they had no that, but clearly, there was a link there between protein intake and muscle strength, muscle mass, muscle power, muscle function. So, you know, how on earth would they know that? There's very little mention of carbohydrate, I might add, but certainly protein was a prime 
macronutrient and certainly you know that's been around tens of thousands of years um so as i said earlier you can go back and you know go back to crow and lindard 100 years ago doing high fat diets and noting endurance performance was lower and this that and the other i often say to the students you know we can measure things faster but how much more information have we got than you know typical rar measurements measured uh, to a to a degree of accuracy which probably we don't even get on today's metabolic carts for example so yeah maybe we just some to some extent reinventing the wheel which is a little bit humbling when you think about it i'm not saying that everything that we know about sport nutrition has been discovered far from it and certainly from a mechanistic side we're just scratching the surface so i think for me that's a very exciting area but when you take it back to the practitioner you know that actual coalface advice to the athlete then i think that's a different challenge and also the the advice that they're getting is obviously not just from the nutritionist in fact invariably that can be one of the last people they listen to they are confronted with their coaches their colleagues and nowadays of course social media and the reason why i'm talking about sort of the historical context is because we still find you know um you refer to uh, uh you know the, the the evangelism that occurs um you know in in the in the bigger sort of picture of, of nutritional extremism if you like in the you know in the wider world that we live with things like paleo diets and um you know vegan diets or uh to a certain extent low carb or, or whatever where we're we're talking about something that is less about religion sorry less about science and maybe more about religion maybe you you could discuss that you know that that interesting link um and whether it's a clash or whether it you know whether it's synergistic between the, the sort of you know science and the religion behind nutrition which invariably is a big issue that we still deal with today and of course the religions i guess become more prevalent because we've got social media driving the, the sort of the cult of, of personality behind it but you know, it's interesting to me that the, the you know, some of the, all the two biggest factions that I'm interested in at the moment, the, the vegan movement and the um, keto movement, they're almost diametrically opposed. If you did a, a Venn diagram of the food that's allowed on those diets, you've probably got a little bit of avocado sitting in the middle of that Venn diagram where the overlap is, but everything else is, you know, excluded. And yet they're both convinced they're right. <laughs> and, um, it's it's you know this is probably the the time where we've seen this just extremism and this belief that there's only one way of doing things at, at times where it's just so diametrically opposed so i hope we can get past that and start seeing that you know that there is context behind things and that what's right for one thing might be different to another and that we can all have a chance to be right rather than um we're the only ones and everybody else was wrong. Agree. I, you know, yeah, when... What, again, just to add a little yeah, bit on, to that, I mean, science isn't always just black and white. There are, you know, 50 shades of grey sometimes. And I think the dogmatic approach is very, very dangerous in science. You know, we set up hypotheses, we test hypotheses. Yes, you only have to one exception to the rule and the hypothesis doesn't stand anymore but 
We're in a field where there is so much inter-individual variability. There are so many sporting situations, files of events which last, you know, a few seconds up to three weeks. So I don't think you're always going to get these universal truths. And I, I get very worried sometimes when I see these, you know, dogmatic statements of the one size fits all. It, it's not like that. Science shouldn't be like that. And certainly it should not be about personalities either. It should be about the data. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's why I'm having this conversation and why I have a lot of these chats with, you know, scientists and practitioners such as yourselves who, you know, are best placed to have that understanding and face it. I think we can all agree, you know, that, that, that if we were to have a bias, it would be simply to be getting the best possible results that we can for our athletes, which means that, you know, we, we are absolutely interested in what works and what doesn't work. Um, you know, there's no, there's no other real perspective there. Um, so the reason why I'm talking about all this is, is despite all the, uh, you know, the options that exist. And as you say, there are lots of people that sit into different camps. If we can bring this back to the human, the human being, the human body, John, um, you know, I, I, I guess it's fair to say that despite all the things that, that give us our uniqueness, if we're talking about what we look like, what we sound like, you know, the sort of the genetic side of things, there's, there's more, there's more about us that is similar between each other than differentiates us. Right. And I think that that's an important perspective. If we start to now look at, at what, at what we know or what's, what's being put into practice in, in terms of sports nutrition and supporting performance, because the, the, the machine, if you like, the, 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 you know, the, the environment with which we're, we're, we're putting all of this into is something we, we know maybe a little bit more about perhaps, but you know, where, from your perspective, John, since you spent so much time looking at this, you know, how, how important is that concept when we start to look at all this other evidence that exists out there? Yeah, no, that's, again, that's a really good perplexing question. And I mean, I, I, you know, we've written about this in the Integrative Biology of Exercise Review. And at the end of the day, yeah, there is more commonality than there is dissimilarity. There's no question about that. You know, we've got a bunch of around 19,500 genes. You know, they very rarely differ among individuals. I'm not a big believer in uh, genetic predictors of performance and all this, that and the other. So obviously the environment, the training, the nutrition, the psychology and everything else uh, it is not similar, but among elite athletes, it's very similar. You know, you could look at the start of a marathon and see the people who are over 100 kilo and you know they're not going to run two hours for a marathon. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot more similarity than dissimilarity. But also, you know, the human body's been designed with so much redundancy, you know, and even if you haven't got, you know, a certain pathway operating optimally, something else will, will pop up and take over its place. So all these nuances make it very uh, challenging, you know, to, to predict what particular nutrients going to work for what individual under one, what circumstance and everything else. But I guess your point is valid that we, we're more common than dissimilar. So from that perspective, you know, we start with the black box and we pretty much know what's in the black box. It's what we put into the black box and you know, what our readouts are They're They're the differentials that we, we try to study. And again, you know, we haven't mentioned this, but the problem with us is that we study such small sample sizes by definition and, yeah. You know, Louise's yeah. supernova studies. You, you've got the best race walkers in the world, but they're a finite population. Can we take muscle biopsies from them? Not really, because most of them are going to the Olympics. Uh, you know, you can't do these sort of things for ethical constraints. And to go back again to 
to some of the classic work that was done, and it's published in the New York Academy of Sciences, volume 301, 1977, as my students say, I can remember references, if nothing else. And again, work from a lot of pioneering sciences, including John Holozzi, uh, Dave Costill, and many, many other big names, brought together all the best marathon runners in the world and studied them in Dallas for two or three weeks, took just about every measurement under the sun. And I often refer to that as the, if you like, the Bible, because if you go back and look at that, you really get a handle on where the field was in the late 70s. And, and I guess my provocative question is, how much further have we advanced the, the practical side of athletes from there? Now, I'm not sure that's answered your question at all, but um, it's, it's more or less where I think we are now. And, uh, and until we can do literally more of that work with the top level performers, as Louise again pointed out earlier on, it's all right studying people who train 20 hours a week, but they're not Olympians. You know, most of the subjects which we deal with are not Olympians. We'll not donate biopsies. We cannot, you know, really dissect out any more information that was available perhaps, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, that look, that's exactly why I refer to there's, there's evidence, there's what we know, but then there's also what is actually relevant to what we're, we're trying to do and and therein lies an issue when it comes to the practitioner as that rational critical thinking agent that's involved in in this process and it is not you know we know that theory is rarely articulated in the trenches of real world practice so the fact that that we're discussing this is important because there is a propensity to apply you know the textbook into the real world environment and as you say particularly for those working in high performance environments you know the 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 bulk of that research is done on on students who might be pretty decent athletes but they're not elite athletes in the context of say an olympian a, a world champion ultra endurance athlete in fact they're the outliers aren't they um louise yeah. perhaps you could you know, we've, I've talked about this a lot in this podcast with lots of people, but it's such an important message. And you do refer to this in, in your paper. We're going backwards and forwards, which is how my brain works generally. <laughs> but but um, Louise, since I think this is important to lead into some of the more sciencey stuff that we'll get into, um, you know, wh- why is that a relevant, um, you know, uh, point for us to bear in mind when we're looking at the evidence that we're looking to inform our practice well uh, I mean, elite athletes have a number of different things going for them and you know partly there can be some genetic basis to to things and i think the biggest thing though is that the volume and the intensity and the history of their training has really honed some of those critical pathways or critical limiting factors that recreational people have still got to deal with Um, Which is not to say that things don't work with elite athletes. I mean, we do plenty of things with elite athletes that follow the sports nutrition guidelines that have been um, developed on recreational people. But, um, you know, in some cases, there is a gap in the literature that that seems to say that this seems less in lower-caliber athletes. But... I think, as you said before, there's more that's the same than there's different because um, there's, you know, plenty of opportunity to, to show performance benefits around carbohydrate support in um, in endurance situations. Caffeine's still a very highly popular supplement that's used with um, elite athletes. I mean, there's lots of things that do work 
And sometimes the, the, um, the trick with elite athletes is finding the practical way of achieving it because, you know, when you're trying to do some of these things at the high speeds that they move at or in the under the rules of their competition, there are some limitations to the practicalities of achieving that nutrition support. On the other hand, there are some ways in which elite athletes might have an easier time because sometimes, you know, the rules of marathons or um, elite competition are set up so that there's special tables for the elite to be able to get their things from or they may be able to have handlers or um, they may actually, you know, have more of the butler service with their sports nutrition. So sometimes it can be difficult to get the practical sides right. Sometimes elite athletes have the benefit of um, plenty of support. Um, I think one of the, you know, the... The great things when you see that elite sports nutrition in action, and we've had, you know, recently or last year, we had um, a lot of the, the news coming out of um, the Sky team about how well and how practically they were fueling Chris Froome with his Giro Italia um, win. And when you see that and how important both the, the science of the sports nutrition, but practice of it, you know, how they managed it, um, that's really, the, for me, the... That, um, that great outcome of science and practice together where you, you get the, the perfect storm happening. Yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? I, you know, mm-hmm. sports nutrition is so much more than, you know, just about getting someone's weight down or, you know, carbohydrate loading before a 10K, um, you know, sort of approach that it used to be. We've got that wonderful sort of intersection of, of training and adaptation support we you know obviously are looking at at performance but actually perhaps the biggest focus for performance nutritionists is ultimately about keeping our our athletes healthy right it it you know i think sometimes that's forgotten you know we have this sort of focus too much about macros and leucine thresholds and you know getting someone to the point of optimizing muscle protein synthesis but generally speaking helping you know the 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 athlete maintain a robust level of health is is perhaps the greatest achievement that a performance nutritionist can achieve particularly when you look at the sheer amount of physical stress that the elite athletes now undergo with international travel multiple matches per week or you know people doing five six seven day you know, ultra endurance events. In fact, yesterday I, I did a, a, a podcast with Ricardo Costa and we were talking about ultra endurance athletes and nutrition and the gut and health and so on. Absolutely fascinating stuff. You know, we are, as you say, you know, there is a, a contextualization process here. But, but John, if we just bring it back to the commonalities between us, when we think about athletes, I guess we could sort of boil that down to sort of a high performance engine perhaps um, and there are components to that um, that you know bring it sort of to propulsion and movement and strength and power and like the title of your paper swifter higher stronger or bigger faster uh, more powerful and so on but that engine at the central focus of this um, is something that obsesses a lot of people in sport and exercise science and and in nutrition that is an area that we're trying to influence which is the you know the, the getting the most out of that engine john what with regards to what we know about the engine and how it functions and obviously there are different applications for that 
for that engine, what, what are the most important characteristics that you think, you know, that, that we know and perhaps the areas we don't yet know that are worth discussing in this, in this topic? Well, look, if you look at the endurance side, I mean, you could have the argument whether it's uh, the muscle driving the cardiac output or the cardiac output, you know, delivery to the muscle. But I think if you say what's the area the where we've least explored, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me. It's, it's the brain and the central nervous system. Mm. Yeah, that, that, engine. That, that drives everything, you know. And again, Louise said earlier that, you know, elite athletes are different in many ways. And, you know, although I'm a physiologist and Louise is a nutritionist and, there's no question that the psychology is very important. And I think the link between the brain, as if we call it the driver, and, and, and driving the motor is, is an untapped area, really. I mean, you know, perception of effort is something that we've known. We've been around for years and everything else. We've got lots of techniques now. You know, we can pre-call. We can give certain fluids. We can do this, that, and the other to change perception of effort and everything else, which presumably will change pacing. But... At the end of the day, you, you can have the best drivers that you need to run a two-hour marathon, but at the end of the day, you know, you've got to be able to have that pain threshold or that tolerance or some ability of the central nervous system to almost, you know, ig ignore all the incoming signals and cues that it's receiving from every neuron in the body to, to just drive on relentlessly. So I think as far as areas of future research, you know, how nutrient availability or non-availability in some cases and affect the central driver, which can then, if you like, propel the whole system. I think that's an area of fertile research. But of course, you know, you, you can't go and take brain biopsies, not even in Scandinavia, I don't think. And they do pretty much anything they want to. I mean, there's got to be some way that we can measure this indirectly or, or perhaps more invasively than we're doing at the moment. But I really think that's an area that's completely untapped. And that's not to be disrespectful to colleagues that have been working in this area, but it would be nice for, and this is where cross-disciplines would help, you know, for the, some of the experts in neurology and brain imaging and this, that, and the other, to get together with the sports scientists and the nutritionists and say, look, this is really what we want to measure. Can you guys measure this? And, you know, maybe very easy. And there may be someone listening who can think, well, I can help you with that. I think that's an area of absolutely fertile research. You know, I love, yeah, I, I mean, I love that whole approach. I mean, we got into that John a lot in our integrated biology conversation and I think that you make a good point there um, and again this is why I'm trying to differentiate science um, um, and practice and say there's an integration there that needs to be borne in mind because like you say you know yes you've got the well let's say the racing car but you still have the driver and you still have the environment of the track and the weather and quite frankly in in using that analogy you you could put Lewis Hamilton or someone in a in a basic Ford Fiesta, and he'd probably still get that track around that track faster than I would in a Formula One car. But I'd probably kill myself, to be honest. Yeah. I, I, you know, that therein lies an issue, does it not, Louise? In 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 that body of knowledge, which is evolving pretty rapidly, um, a lot of that is 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 quite reductionistic based knowledge um and or not necessarily high quality knowledge so it, it, maybe we're maybe we are forgiven for all this disconnection um perhaps and we're, we're you know we're led to believe you know that certain parts of the body are more important than others and that's why maybe we focus on that in our interventions because that's where all the information keeps hitting us in in the brain yeah and then look from time to time you get 
these nice little kernels that um, suddenly join it all together. This this whole area of mouth sensing, the idea that nutrients can connect with the brain just by simply having them in your in your mouth and oral cavity and gut, and that they can exert influences even before they've you know become available to the muscle or other parts of the body. That's really fascinating, and the ability to be able to um, you know, provide something both centrally and peripherally, or one or the other, and 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 meet both needs in sport is really fascinating. It certainly opened up a, a whole new area of sports nutrition in terms of the types of sport, which we what you do essentially has more of an effect. And so if you need to do very high volume training or you're trying to do train low or train fatigued, being able to improve the quality of that by taking on some um, mouth sensing nutrients or um, some central nervous system affecting nutrients like caffeine to help you train harder and better is um, a whole new angle that we hadn't previously thought of. So in your, if we bring this back to a central thing then that, 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 you know, we talk about in nutrition, which of course is fueling. We, we have terms like fuel for the work required. There are debates about low carb, high carb. Um, we appreciate that, you know, there are some, you know, differences, you know, in the body's makeup from person to person. Training obviously brings about changes in that. Um, but essentially... You know, and I like I like the way you refer to this as a fuel crisis in in the paper. What what, what do you mean by that? Um, solving the fuel crisis, and why is that such an important topic for us to get into? Yeah, well, look, eventually, you know, you need to have some ATP available to to make the muscle contract and do what it needs to do. And so, we've got to think about how we can make that supply of substrate available to be able to produce the ATP for as long and at, at as high rates as possible to meet the needs of the event. And it's about having the pathways, it's about having the fuel substrate, it's about being able to integrate different sources of ATP production and, you know, cope with all the different demands of, of, of the exercise. And I think, you know, in the past we've been too focused on thinking it's all um, done at the same intensity and we're looking to see time to exhaustion models being able to explain performance whereas in you know real life many of our events have these intermittent stochastic requirements for you know very high rates of, of ATP production at times and so you need to have a whole range of different ways of, of producing ATP under under different circumstances and so solving the fuel crisis is about training the pathways to be able to integrate but also having enough substrate on board at the start of the exercise session or being able to take in more as you're going to be able to um to use it's almost like you need to produce that last bit of atp on the on the finish line and um get, get yourself there as as well as possible i mean i, I remember lauren you know lecturing to undergraduate students and I said, what's the difference between a 100-meter race and a marathon race? And, you know, I've got some very strange answers, as, as you'd expect from undergrads. But at the end of the day, both are about producing the maximum rates of AT pre-production and the maximum power for the distance or the duration of the event required. So 
you know, a marathon, you've got a, a finite fuel supply. You literally have to eke it out over two hours or depending on your ability level, a lot more than that. The same is true in a 100 meters event. You've got to produce that maximum power, albeit for a much shorter generation. So any event really is about, at least in events which are, are time trialed or the person to get to the line fastest or quickest or whatever you want to call it, are about power generation. So it's training those those pathways. And again, it, it's all what we refer to there, the fuel crisis is, is literally supply and demand. It's as simple as that, making sure that supply and demand are, you know, are pretty close to about delaying the onset of fatigue. And of course, there's a bit of an issue, isn't there, with how that information comes across to the consumer, because science presents information in a certain way so i'm thinking you know we look at the whole brooks and mercer you know uh, going from uh, uh, low intensity sort of aerobic if you like to high intensity anaerobic and there's a nice you know tidy little chart there that shows you that low intensity aerobic activities it's going to be you know basically all fat and then once we get to sort of um, high intensity uh, your sort of rocket speed stuff then it tends to be all carbohydrate but we now we now know um, that that isn't the case. Um, in fact, there's a mixture of fuel supplies used, isn't there? And, and and this, I guess, is where we start coming back to you know the context. What is it that you're actually trying to achieve? But also where we differentiate elite athletes from non-elite, which is where I think part of the problem happens when you know we look at the uh, all the noise that exists um, out there in terms of information, you, you've got people talking about apples and oranges um, without realizing it because it's all dressed up as fruit, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you could just bring us up to date, you know, bearing in mind that there's much more advanced techniques. Like you say, there's, you know, biopsies, traces, there's all sorts of ways of looking at, at metabolism nowadays perhaps you know it, it, it you could just help us uh, remember where we're at with that and how we understand how fuel is actually used for medal winning performance in particular well it's it's a really really good point that you bring up and if i'm being ruthlessly honest there are two studies in the literature one by luke van loon done with paul greenhalf at, uh, at nottingham and the other by hans remain done in eddie coyle's lab and they are essentially the two papers on which the whole of the if you like, fuel demands of exercise in a base. And I'm sure you know these as, as well as your listeners. Mm. You know, they look at a, a series of exercise intensities or power outputs ranging from, you know, 40, 50, 60, up to around 85%. Now, 85% isn't even the intensity which two-hour marathons are raced at. So, you know, there's a whole 15% zone there which they haven't been able to do. Why? Because most individuals, and certainly the individuals in those studies, can't attain the steady-state conditions required for us to really be able to measure substrate oxidation rates accurately. So I'm not knocking those studies. I've used them. They're great studies. But that, if you look at the individuals, there's probably 20 individuals. And most of those studies, by the way, are done with male subjects, although Remain did go back and uh, look at it in females. And essentially, that's what we base on the whole of metabolism and muscle metabolism on. Now, they're not elite athletes. They're well-trained. They're not elite. What happens if we tested elite athletes? I think you would get not totally different uh, rates of substrate oxidation and fuel mixtures, but I'm sure the results would not be the same. So again, it's the case of us using sub-elite data at the metabolism level and the muscle level 
to extrapolate what elite athletes are doing. And they're, they're a completely different kettle of fish, unfortunately. And, and John, if we just keep this in the, you know, we're using that analogy of, uh, uh, you know, the driver and the, and the race car, are we re- is what we're saying here that it's not so much a case of we've got the car, it's being designed, we're just changing the driver, when actually the car itself adapts and evolves and changes and, and therefore what we're, you know, when we're looking at these sub-elite athletes, we've, we've made assumptions about that engine. And although we're, we're now looking at, well, how do we change the driver? We've forgotten that there may also be changes or adaptations to the vehicle itself as well. Is that absolutely. where we're going? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely right, Lauren. I mean, look, yes, the, the central driver and, you know, the, the whole CNS and, and the context we've discussed it in tonight is, is still relevant and still applicable. But, you know, if you've got a different chassis and you've got, you know, a car weight of 600 kilos versus 400 kilos, the power to weight ratio is going to be different. Everything's different about it. And again, we just simply lack the information, I think, in often in circumstances to provide the elite athlete with precise data for them. I mean, it's only really in the studies that Louise has done with the supernova and a few others in the world, you know, where Asker Jurgendrup and James Morton and other colleagues have been able to work with really elite athletes that we're able to find out, gosh, these guys are different. And, you know, you talk to Asker Jurgendrup about the work he's done with Haley Gabriel Selassie, uh, some of it, which is unpublished for obvious reasons, or Andy mm-hmm. Jones did with Paula Radcliffe, et cetera, et cetera. These are different people. And again, I think we often jump to assumptions that are really not based on science at all, but just a giant leap of faith, to be completely honest. So, when I run a marathon in three and a half hours, that's not the same race that Bogie's trying to run in two hours. Um, we're running at different intensities of relative and, and absolute. And so, you know, what, what Elliot will need to do to break that two hour marathon is different to what I set out to do when I'm trying to break my PB. And the other thing is, you know, when Elliot runs, he probably needs to have a kick and he needs to be able to change his, his intensity to, to suit the race tactics where when I'm running a marathon, I just sit out of the pace I think I can hold on for and, you know, it, it, it's just about me. So we're really thinking about different ways in which the limitations to performance are going to occur. And, and again, just to jump in there, you know, Louise is analogy. She's really just doing a time to exhaustion and to fix submaximal workload. So in the laboratory, you know, those sort of tests might predict her performance. But in the in the inner city big marathons where prize money is at stake, you know, as Louise said, there's surges. The races often comes down to the last 400 meters. And, you know, who's got the, the fuel crisis under control and who can put in that last kick? They are completely different races, physiologically, psychologically and nutritionally. So contextualization is, you know, is important. I, I know I, I, people accuse me of going on about context all the time, but I, it's such an important thing. But in order to contextualize this in the lab, I can see where you use advanced laboratory techniques, uh, you know, scans, biopsies, um, you know, looking at different muscle fiber types, even genetics, all sorts of things. But from a practice perspective, Louise, you know, contextualization is not such an easy thing to do, is it? Um, and of course, when you don't contextualize, you know, you just throw the information at your athletes and assume that everyone's the same, which of course they're not. But just because it's worth keeping this practical as well, 
is is that individualization process where i mean how are we supposed to go down that path given where we're at with this louise well if you're lucky and you're working with one athlete at a time you can take into account their past history and experiences and you know if they're working in the same event and want to take histories and work out what well or what happened in a past event um, and marrying that with what you know about the sort of the physiology and the science and the, the textbook and then you know trying to um, to to merge the two integrate um, what might work with what has worked or practicing new things is is really document what they do really well so you can improve on it um, and you know part of the, the whole process of, of creating is being able to debrief and to try new things and to continually refine and you now you're a, sort of a, a learning robot you're continually um, improving on what you've done previously because you learned from the past so that's that's a that's a, um, a luxury i guess you have when you work at the elite level with athletes where the ratio of you to the athlete allows you to do that it's much harder if you're working with yeah sorry the uh the sound went a bit a bit funny there hopefully you guys can can still hear me so where i'm leading towards there is you know john i guess there's two sides to this we you know if we talk about you, you know the sort of the plasticity if you like the adaptability of of the body the muscle the fuel supplies there's that side oh i'm sorry can you hear me guys it's, yeah, it's you're just, cutting it out a bit yeah, yeah no the uh, one, one is the technology hopefully the listeners can still bear with us on this but the <laughs> where, where i was coming at with this from is you you know there it's very difficult obviously to contextualize as you've pointed out but but one approach, of course, we have is to try and personalize the approach to what the athlete is doing, their training, um, you know, the, the different sort of periodization side of things. John, just from a sort of a physiological uh, bio, biochemistry side of things, um, you know, do, do, does periodization make a lot of sense to you? Yeah, it does. And I think one of the things that you said earlier was very, very important too, you know, we're always stressing to our 15-year-old son who's a you know, competitive swimmer and soccer player and the other various sports that he does that, you know, you can't be fit before you're healthy. And I think one of the things that uh, nutrition can do and certainly play a, a very big role is, is make sure that the athlete does try and keep that healthy balance. Because, you know, there's no question that, as you said, from a biochemical point of view, yeah, periodization of training makes sense. You know, it was Lydiard and Bill Baum and some of these famous coaches who, who came up with the easy hard day principle. That makes sense from a lot of perspectives, from the immunity side, from the health side. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm having a coughing fit here. Also from the fuel side. So <coughs> based purely on 
you know, physiology, biochemistry and everything else. Yeah. The periodization of nutrition goes hand in hand with the periodization of training. And, uh, and again, you said the cannot be fit before you're healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And so Louise, I mean, we refer to periodization. You talk about this in the paper, um, which obviously we're, you know, encouraging people to read, but in terms of, of what you can do for periodization um, as compared to what we, you know, what we should and what we shouldn't do, perhaps you could just, you know, bring us up to date with where we're at with periodization because this has really become something that's super popular now, you know, the individualization, the personal approach, which has been taken in, you know, in training and strength conditioning, you know, periodization is quite popular um, and it is now becoming so with, with nutrition. Um, from your perspective, you know, where are we with that? Um, and as far as you can see, what are the, what are the evidence-based um, tools in that toolbox that we, you know, we should definitely be considering? Well, there's a number of different ways of thinking about periodization. And the, the basic one would be that if you're thinking about the way that training is periodized, then there are different phases of the, the training calendar where you're working on different aspects of what it is you need to be to compete at your best. And so because your training will change, your nutritional needs will change. Even if you're trying to um, aim for the same approach of just meeting nutritional requirements or um, working from a, a, a nutritional surplus or adequacy, then because you're changing your training, your nutrition needs to change with it. But if you then want to go and drill down into different aspects of nutritional support, so you might periodise between some types of training where you're providing a nutritional support versus some sorts of training where you're deliberately withholding nutritional support to try and drive adaptation further. And that's what some people think of as, as periodization now, that sort of change from the plus to the minus of the nutrition support. And I think there's um, you know, some valid um, evidence to say that different ways of approaching that nutrition support for different kinds of training sessions can be useful. And that's possibly where there's, you know, more chance of being able to individualise of how well people tolerate different kinds of, of, of nutrition support, the absence or the presence of it. Um, one of the things that I think we're not very good at sometimes is understanding that periodisation does mean having these hard, easy days or having changes to the body. Sometimes what happens in nutrition is you discover something and then everybody wants to do it 100% all the time. So some of the training low literature has been misunderstood in that, yes, we can see that when you train in the absence of carbohydrate availability or with low carbohydrate availability, it drives adaptation. And so the temptation has been to say, well, let's do that all the time so that we get maximum adaptation but that's interfering with other aspects of, of the training goals. So we need to think about being able to integrate and mix and match the kinds of ways that we can offer nutrition support or um, promotion for, for training so that it gradually all integrates into what the total picture needs to be. So it's not all just one thing. 
you, you know, that something you just mentioned there that I think John is going to be able to help us with. Um, um, you used the word interfere. And I think this is important because, and I referred to this before, as just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do. Uh, you know, uh, studies on expertise and expert practice has identified not just the need for skills in, in contextualization and obviously, you know, underpinning knowledge, but is also learning when not to do something, um, which in many ways could be a, a, a you know, a, 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 a way of explaining what interfering is. But from a interference effect from a, um, uh, from a, a physiological perspective, you know, biochemical uh, signaling, uh, and so on, John, what are the consequences of this interference effect? And, and um, you know, there's a good and bad side to that, isn't there, if you think of it as a strategy? But what, what are we even talking about here? Okay, well, let me see if I've interpreted the question correctly. I mean, if you're looking at the interference uh, between different modalities of training, strength and endurance, that, that's one thing. And we do know there are interference effects there. Just to pick up on one of Louise's points about the interference effect, and I'll use the train low as an example. You know, when, when we first published the paper in 2008, and this wasn't the first study, Bank Saltine showed that train low enhanced training adaptation in 2005, albeit in a, in a one-legged kicking model. We did it with athletes with, with two legs on a bike, which seemed more real world to us. But notwithstanding that, you know, Louise's point again is quite valid. I remember vividly a coach, uh, and I had to hold the phone several meters away from my ear, just giving me a, an absolute abusive uh, list of, of things that had happened to his athletes since he'd been training low. And, and I said, hold on, hold on, hold on, what are you doing here? He said, we've been doing this for four weeks. They're in a heap, you know, they can hardly do this. They can't. I said, well, nowhere in the paper does it say you've done this, you know, and take it to its extreme. So Louise's point about, you know, one session or two sessions a week might be very good, but you know, seven's disastrous. And the point there, this is where the interference comes in. Your training adaptation, your physiological side of things, the biochemical pathways, the upregulation of the signaling pathways, you know, PGC1 and mitochondrial biogenesis and all this, that and the other, that's fine. But if your training intensity is 7 to 8% lower with low glycogen availability, which our studies have shown repeatedly, James Morton and Asker Jürgen Grups again, then that's an interference effect. You can't have your athlete going 7 or 8% slower just because you've got more mitochondria. At some point, they're going to think, hold on, you know, something's going wrong here. So that's a good example of interference. The, the mechanistic side of things are very interesting to me and to drive mitochondrial adaptations is very important. But, you know, once you've got X mitochondria, perhaps X plus one doesn't really help. And if the interference there is such that, you know, you're setting yourself up for injury or illness or your training intensity is reduced, that's a massive interference effect. Yeah, it reminds me of a really interesting conversation I had for this podcast with Jackson Fife, um, oh, yeah. concurrent training in the molecular side of things. Um, but, but Louise, when, if I bring this back to what we're trying to achieve with our performance nutrition strategies to support training, and this is in light of the can but should you type argument um, with things like going low carb, for example, um, or trying to induce fat, fat adaptation for reasons that have that you know that some people will argue has logic um you, you've i've heard you refer or write about this elsewhere that the consequence of that um might be um at the expense of the body's ability to use for example carbohydrate as a fuel which john has already made quite clear as of you that 
that if you're trying to win a medal or win a race, you know, you've got to get that extra gear. Um, as Trent Stellingworth referred to in another podcast, you know, you've got gears one, two, three, you know, but if you want to tap into gears four and five, um, that's where you're going to need to be able to switch rapidly. So I guess that brings us into the concept of metabolic flexibility, which is something that's um, becoming, you know, more popular in the sports nutrition literature. I've heard you write about it or read you read work by you, Louise, where you talked about that a fair few times now. What, why is that a, an important topic, you feel? Um, having the best of both worlds, um, is, that, is that something we really should be striving to achieve as it relates to you know, medal-winning performance from your perspective? Well, training improves metabolic flexibility under my terminology of what metabolic flexibility is. Um, people are using the words now to mean that you can burn more fat as an exercise fuel and they drive that to the, the, the extreme, thinking that only being able to burn fat is, is the um, improvement in, in metabolic flexibility that they're after, whereas I would see it as being able to integrate all fuel systems and so it's good to be able to burn more fat if you still want to be able to burn more carbohydrate, particularly under the conditions where that's going to be the more effective fuel source. And so what we found, and look, I've, I've spent nearly two decades doing this because I thought it was a really good idea of what could we do to make more use of the body's fat stores, but every angle we've tried with it shown that you can improve it through training but if you try and improve it as extremely as you can by being on that high fat diet then you're also interfering with carbohydrate oxidation and you can't you can't have the extremes of one or the other you can pick where you need to be so you get the best of 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 both but if you put all your eggs in the high fat basket then you're really going to do that at the detriment of your carbohydrate oxidation pathways. And that mightn't be a problem if you're doing lower intensity exercise that doesn't require you to have that top gear as you, as you talk about. Mm. And there are some events that do that. But generally in the elite world of sport, most athletes who are successful need to have that gear. And so most of those athletes need to probably choose nutritional and training strategies that allow the pathways to be able to be all used rather than um, knocking one of them out. And let's, let's just remember where this term metabolic flexibility came from. It originally comes from studies uh, in diabetics and it was termed really as, as the inability to transition between fuel sources, in other words, carbohydrate and, and fat-based fuels, in response to hormonal or contractile stimuli. So in other words, the first studies were done in diabetic subjects where they were given a carbohydrate challenge. And, you know, instead of carbohydrate oxidation rising dramatically, nothing really happened. And the, that's one of the characteristics of a type 2 diabetic. And we're getting off topic here, but it, it's the ability to transition rapidly and upon demand between fuels. And that's important. And I think the important point in here from the biochemical perspective is, you know, once you've flooded the system with fat and you're fat adapted or you're on a low carbohydrate diet and pyruvate dehydrogenase is down-regulated, you lose that ability to switch and transition between the fuels. 
which is fine if you're doing a time to exhaustion at 70% of VO2 max, but not if you're trying to win a race with a kick or you're trying to out sprint someone in the last 400 meters of a marathon. So it's the ability to transition between fuels, which is rapidly important. And, and I don't think the definition for the diabetic or the athlete should be any different, to be completely honest. It's that ability to rapidly switch fuel sources in response to instantaneous demand. And in soccer, for example, in team sports, that's exactly what you want. You know, you want to be first to the ball. you first to the ball by 50 centimetres, you end up in. Yeah, the uh, the sound seems to be going there. Uh, guys, can you hear me again? Yeah, we can. Sorry, yeah, we seem to be catching up. No, no, no. Maybe no. The- I'll precede this uh, podcast with a little comment about the sound and say that these guys literally do sound like this. <laughs> but, but no, it's the, it's the central governor. Don't, don't forget we're fatiguing, <laughs> we're fatiguing rapidly here. <laughs> well, do you, know, do you know what? You read my mind there, John. Um, so fatigue was the thing I wanted to get into next. And you've got a section about fighting fatigue, eating to win. Fatigue is fascinating. And, you, you know, we talk about the body, you know, the muscle, fueling, running out of fuel, you know, optimizing fuel supplies, the whole messaging thing, you know, central peripheral fatigue and so on. How important is this concept of fatigue? Um, how complex is fatigue is my second question. And, and from what we know about that as performance nutritionists, what can we do about fatigue? All right, well, firstly, fatigue is, is real. It exists. Uh, secondly, it's multifactorial. You know, you could talk about neural, you could talk about uh, problems at the muscle, you could talk about uh, delivery of substrates, you could talk about a whole host of things, not even mentioning the central nervous system drive and the things that we've talked about earlier. So, look, it's multifaceted. And I guess depending on the situation, uh, depending on the exercise event or race or whatever it happens to be, you know, fatigue is different things to different people. You know, having just watched um, a swimming competition for the last three or four days, you know, there are certain events where fatigue in the sprints is a completely different kettle of fish to fatigue in a 1,500-meter race. And, and again, it's horses for courses. Fatigue means different things under different event constraints. And again, your, your word, uh, but gaining, gaining traction with me now, the contextualization of fatigue, I think, is an important concept. Mm. We tried in the article to um, come up with some of the different kinds of fatigue that can occur, and well, particularly the ones that have a, a nutrition-related um, facet, so that nutrition might be able to delay or reduce um, the, the consequences. And even in doing that, there was a you know, temptation to make it reductionist, that it, it does look like, oh, it can only be... Um, acid-based disturbances in, in this event or it's only loss of uh, the fuel source, whether it's the phosphocreatine or the, the carbohydrate. And it, it, you know, it's nice to be able to think of different ways in which fatigue can occur, but I think we always need to remember that in, in events, it's usually a number of things happening at, at the same time and you might be able to uh, address one that seems to be more important than the other, but you can't negate the fact that there's probably a lot of things happening at the same time. Yeah, I think well, that's a good point. You know, ultimately it's decline in muscle force production. You know, if you're looking at it from a muscle physiology point of view, but as Louis says, there's, there's just so many aspects of it, you know, running out of fuel, central drive, uh, blood supply, uh, calcium handling, 
all these other factors. So again, I think in the article, we did try and bring out the fact that there's not just one box that you can tick. There might be one predominant rate limiting step, but a number of other physiological, psychological, and nutritional factors have probably contributed to that in the final analysis. So, you know, look, with, with, with all of this stuff that we're talking about and in, you know, this ever growing body of knowledge, there are huge amounts of options available to the practitioner. There's lots of areas for researchers to, to get into, to find that, that novel, that novel topic to, to get into. Um, and you've got a section here where you, you use the term when less is more. I, I think that's a particularly important um, statement in itself. And I've already referred to that as it relates to expert practices, you know, is being able to reduce down your options to the most important ones and the most relevant ones. Um, you know, bringing this sort of to the end of this discussion then, um, if from the perspective of less is more, Louise, what, you know, what are those few areas that warrant the greatest amount of attention you feel, bearing in mind the evidence base, bearing in mind the practical constraints of putting all this stuff into practice? What are those, what are those areas that you feel are absolutely the primary areas of focus? Look, it really depends on the athlete, both the sport that they're doing and, you know, what's driving them because, you know, some of the things that I think would be the most important things to get right first for some of my endurance athletes would be different to some of the, um, the power or the team athletes. And so I think having a, um, an ability to be able to look between different kinds of sports or even you know, different parts of the season, what's most important for the athlete is important. And to try and just simplify it, I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. We want to show how smart we are. We want to offer the athlete a million options to make it look like we've got something really valuable when really it, it might be more about just paring it down to what's the most important thing that that athlete can do at this time and once they've got that under their belt then then there's other things that maybe they might be wanting to build on or it might change at a different phase of, of their training and what's important for one athlete could be different to something um in, you know for someone in the same squad even it's um it's that's the that's the fun part of working with with some um, humans is is that you get to have that um, ability to sit there and problem solve about an individual case rather than just cookie cutter it. Yeah, I'll take a non I'll take a non nutritional stand on this, and I think if you ask me, you know, physiologically, biochemically, you know, all the things that you think I know lots about, but probably don't. But um, I I think one of the biggest things in the training field is is that people just try to go too hard all the time. I really am a a firm believer. The older I get, in the you know the very judicial use of easier days or even complete rest days and you know I think one of the hardest jobs physiologists have is you know not just periodizing the training program in, into complex micro cycles and macro cycles and this that and the other but it's just knowing when to back off it's a brave coach who you know an athlete has a bad performance and the usual reaction is let's do more training so when I think of less is more I often think you know more rest would be probably a very good thing for the majority of elite athletes so I think I'm not in an overtrained state because I don't really like that word and I don't think we can really truly detect physiologically or, 
or in any means what it actually means. But uh, certainly, certainly an overworked uh, or an overstressed state. So less is more to me is from the non-nutritional side is perhaps doing less training or smarter training, I think. That's where I would put my eggs in the basket. No, it's great. I, I think that's a, a very good point. And we, you know, as practitioners, we do need to be aware as performance nutritionists of, you know, the training uh, needs and requirements of our athlete. Um, you know, there are things we just can't support um, when, it, like you say, it, it's a question of they're overdoing it. Um, I've had some really great discussions with people like Neil Walsh about stress, not just training stress, but, you know, life stress. Um, that you know, it's it's interesting. So, just there's a couple of points I just want to finish up with here, um, and I'm coming back to you, John, as a scientist who, um, you, you know, you're a, a, a someone who says you do spend more time in the lab, so to speak, on that side of the spectrum. How how can how can how can the 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 field, um, the you know, the practitioners, the the, the real world, so to speak. Um, help you out and help you guide your research um, so that it can assist us better? Where, you know, where, where can that, that teamwork um, improve from your perspective? Well, that's a, really, that's a really good question again. And I think the fact that you've said teamwork, I think it's a, it's a two-way sword. We often expect you know, these volunteers to come into the lab. We take biopsies, we prod them, we ask them to ride to exhaustion and this, that and the other. And often, you know, I think we're remiss as scientists sometimes when we give that information back to the coach, back to the athlete, back to the, if you like, the community level. So I think it's a two-way street. You know, if we want to have these individuals come in and sweat blood, sweat and tears, albeit non-Olympians, but, you know, they're still doing their darndest hardest for you. I think we've got to be better at sitting down with them and providing them with more information and feedback. That's the first point. And secondly, I really do think we need to talk to the coaches and the people at the coalface a lot more it's all right to be stuck in the universe towers looking at all these mechanisms and wonderful pathways and as i said we can measure you know you know twenty thousand genes at the drop of a hat these days whereas before we used to take a muscle biopsy when i was a grad student and if you're lucky we measured muscle a lot more but at the end of the day We've got to give that information back. And I just think sitting down, you know, as I said, a twin meet in the last two or three days, talking to the coaches, listening rather than talking sometimes and just thinking, yeah, that's not bad. It sounds a bit crazy, but maybe I can, uh, maybe I can work with that. And then, and I'll finish on one anecdote for you. And I think you'll like this one. So in 1981, I remember going back to New Zealand. I'd only got my master's degree by that stage. So, you know, I wasn't a PhD or anything. And I did a seminar with Alison Rowe, who won the 1981 New York and Boston marathons, I think in the same year, if I'm, if I'm correct, and broke the world record. And she was coached by Arthur Lydiard. And it was in the days of slides. And for you listeners who don't know what slides are, you know, <laughs> Black and we used to yeah. use real slides and, you know, you turn them upside down and put them in a projector. And if you got them wrong, you looked a real idiot sort of thing. But that doesn't happen today with PowerPoint. Arthur Lydiard, for those of them who don't know, coached, uh, Peter Snell to triple gold medals and a whole host of famous New Zealanders. Anyway, long story short, I gave my talk and it was, a, it was on sports nutrition and, and exercise physiology and this, that and the other. And uh, I sat down and there was applause and lots of questions. And then Arthur Lydiard got up and he said, uh, nice slides. How many Olympic athletes have you coached? And I still remember that to this day. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that, yeah, no, that's, that's a great point there. Um, Louise, from a... Um, you know, with all this evolving science, 
all of these new studies, there's this pursuit for all this novel data that, that keeps coming out. Do you know, do you want to see more and more and more and more of that? Or would you like to see maybe some, you know, more of a focus on, on, you know, um, maybe repeats of studies of things that are important, uh, informed by what the practitioners want? Do you know, do you want to see more practical based studies from your perspective, almost a reverse of what I've asked, asked John, but still a synergy there? Where, where would you like to see this go? I think um, being able to study the complexity of the way that we lay out sports nutrition is important because often we sit out and we do a study and we look at one thing, you know, the effect of nitrate supplementation or the effect of beetroot juice or the effect of carbohydrate loading or whatever it is. And yet when it comes to the real day, the athlete's going to use a number of different nutritional strategies and they may have to repeat their event a number of times, you know, for heats and finals or several games in a tournament or whatever. And so the real life um, questions that athletes want to have answers to aren't often um, undertaken in laboratory situations because we isolate and look at things once. And so it'd be great to have, you know, more complexity to study so that we're looking at interactions and repeatability of, of um, different strategies. But just going back to you know one of the things that, that, that John said about um, the interaction with coaches and athletes, I think that's what I'd like to see more of in, in um, the way that we do research. And that's both in the way that we talk to people to get the designs or the ideas of things we want to study, but also involving them in the process of research. I mean, it's, it's been lucky for me that I've had these opportunities over labor studies and some of the things that have come out of it being serendipitous because I haven't realized that setting up those studies allowed me just to spend so much time with the coaches and athletes there and involve them in how do we design the study so that we can measure before you learn about people just by hanging out with them? Um, that's something we've engineered out of our, our current lives. I mean, I, I remember when I first started at the Institute nearly 30 years ago, you know, you went away for an altitude camp with a group of athletes and that you took a book and at night time you hang around and you talked over dinner. You weren't rushing back to the room to get your emails done. And so you just had more opportunity for those interactions you learnt from each other and you built relationships and rapport that created lots more opportunities to observe and to to understand each other um, and we don't have as many of those opportunities at the moment so the kind of big hairy studies that we do that have lots of people hanging around with each other and just talking in the day that's that's the kind of stuff I like to do now because some of the collateral that comes out of it's really the interesting part. You make a great point there, Louise. And I, you know, I think that there is a danger of a continued state of dehumanizing of our, our research. You know, we have test subjects and, you know, their, their data points when there's so much more to this, isn't there? Um, uh, and like you've also inferred there, that there also needs to be m more of a community that we foster, m not just, you know, the community within, say, a team setting, but also within that, that research and practice team setting. 
um, and also that 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 team of 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 performance and and life and and so on. It's uh, it's it's an amazing thing. It makes me think of, to a certain extent, there's a certain degree that exists of academic sort of pomposity, but at the expense of you know what 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 we're really dealing with which is trying to inform human beings in the real world um which is a slightly different matter um well look listen guys i think we survived the 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 conversation there um i know you got it's really late um uh, your time and uh, we've just about hung in there with the uh, the connection on this podcast so i'd just like to say thank you on behalf of myself and the audience I know most people will know the answer to this, uh, Louise, but if people want to follow you and your work, uh, I know you're um, on Twitter and, and so on. How would they best uh, follow you in that regard? Uh, yes, look, I get on Twitter occasionally. I, I, um, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, I guess just, you know, Googling to see new or pub betting to see new publications or... Yeah, rather than being on Twitter, you're there writing more papers, so your time is better spent, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually spending it just hanging out with athletes. That's what I like, athletes and coaches and other scientists. And, um, you know, some of these young scientists really, gosh, um, they, they inspire you because they're just so good at what they do at such a young age. I could never yeah. have done what half of the people that I'm working with now do. Yeah, no, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, and John, um, um, for those that want to be following you, I mean, I'll, I'll link to your Google Scholars and Research Gates and so on. But um, I know you do a bit of Twitter and that sort of thing too, John. Yeah, not as much as for Andy Jones, um, who obviously have more. But yeah, look, Twitter and look, I'm I'm pretty good at answering emails. I don't want thousands of questions. You know, I get say questions from high school kids which i'm not sometimes you just strike a report with a complete stranger who has an idea and you think holy smoke that's a great idea which again gets back to louise's conversation point more dialogue is very good and for that and it's always good into you you know it is late at night here and the central drives hopefully I've got something out of this podcast. <laughs> well listen I guys. I thought you'd gone. No, no, no. Almost. Almost. But, but I am going to bring it to an end now um, because the, uh, the quality there is not so good. But uh, thank you so much once again. Um, no that problems. brings us to the end of this. Please come back to the, uh, uh, the website which is called wedoscience.com which is specific now to this podcast i'll add some notes and uh, the the paper that we've referred to and so on um and of course for all the other podcasts that i've done which includes previous podcasts with john and louise highly recommend you listen to those i of course am laurel bannock and look forward to talking to you again soon